<clears throat> Tonight I'm going to speak about freedom or liberation. Freedom is something very um, extremely precious. It is hard to come by and easily lost again. Living in a free and democratic country like the United States or like Switzerland, where I was born, we may take this freedom for granted. Freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom to bear arms, freedom of education, freedom of movement, or freedom of the press. The history of mankind has basically been uh, people's, a history of people's struggle to, come, to become free, to become free from oppressing rulers, or to become free from slavery, or to become free from racial discrimination, or to become free from censorship to become free from uh, domestic violence or to become free from unjust laws. Many of these struggles for freedom or independence have been uh, successful. Nowadays, many people enjoy a greater level of freedom, at least in democratic, democratic countries or um, where there are constitutional monarchies. Freedom, freedom of speech or freedom of the press are available to many people, although not to everybody on this planet. There has been quite a lot of progress in regard to the personal freedom that people enjoy nowadays but still many people are not free. And even people who consider themselves to be free human beings are still fettered by invisible chains. Even at our present age, present day, the calls for freedom can be heard from almost every corner of the world. The newspapers are not lacking of articles that deal with people's struggle to become free. Just to mention a few of them, like the call for freedom of the Tibetan people. This has been an ongoing issue now for many years already. Since the brutal invasion of the Chinese in the 1950s, into Tibet with the resulting genocide of the Tibetan people and the almost complete destruction of their culture, their monasteries. The Chinese government has not loosened the grip on this once independent country. Or there is the struggle for gender um, equality especially carried out by many feminists all around the world. For example, 
although Switzerland is considered to be a democratic and progressive country, it was only in 1971 that the women were given the right to vote in Switzerland. In comparison, for example, in New Zealand, women were given the right to vote as early as the 1893. In Germany, women were given the, vote to, the right to vote in 1918. And even in Turkey, women got the right to vote in 1934. Or there is the call for freedom from the oppressive military junta by the Burmese people. Since 1962, um, Burma is ruled by a military government, which is not lacking in cruelty and ruthlessness. The people's protest against the government and for democracy almost 20 years ago they were brutally crushed by the military. And even the recent peaceful demonstrations were equally repressed by brute force. Or another struggle is the struggle uh, to free the so-called sex workers, especially in third world countries or many Asian countries. Many of these women and even young girls are held like slaves by their uh, captors or completely at the mercy of their pimps. So the call for freedom or for widening the frontiers of freedom seem never ending. People's wish for freedom, independence, was as strong at the time of the Buddha as it is today. And in response to this deep-seated wish to be free, the Buddha offered the Dhamma. He offered the Dhamma as a means to achieve a state of complete freedom or liberation. And because the Dhamma is timeless, the teaching is applicable today as it was 25 centuries ago. Although at the time of the Buddha, the social and um, political structures were different, but his teaching aimed at the transformation of the human mind transformation to liberate the mind from the invisible chains that keep it fettered. Nowadays, the social and political structures have changed in many parts of the world, but the nature of the human mind has not changed. That's still the same. The Buddha himself described the Dhamma in the following way. Just as the great ocean has but one taste, the taste of salt, even so this Dhamma and discipline has but one taste, 
the taste of liberation. So with these words, the Buddha assures us the liberating quality of his teaching. The practice of the Dhamma leads to liberation or leads to freedom. This we are told time and again. And when I listen to Dhamma talks in Burma, the Burmese Sayadaws um, very often talk about this liberating quality of the Dhamma. And there I often hear that the Dhamma offers freedom from old age, freedom from aging. It offers freedom from sickness, freedom from death, freedom from the oppressing defilements. It offers the freedom from the repeated rounds of birth and death, freedom from samsara, or the liberation from greed, hatred, and delusion, which are the three root defilements. So whoever practices according to the Dhamma can actually taste this liberating quality. This is not only said by the Buddha, but, but also by many teachers uh, throughout the ages up to the present time. It's like whether you just drink a thimbleful of ocean water, whether you drink a glassful of ocean water, whether you drink a bucketful of ocean water, the same taste um, is experienced. It's a salty taste. Or whether you sample ocean water from the surface, whether you take some of a bit below the surface, or whether you uh, sample water from the very depths of the ocean, still you experience the same taste, the salty taste of the ocean water. And likewise, it is with the Buddha's teaching. A single taste pervades the whole teaching, a single taste of freedom, of liberation. And whether it is at the basic level of practicing generosity or doing acts of devotion or keeping the precepts, you can uh, experience this liberating uh, quality. Or whether it is at an intermediate level, when you actually engage in meditation practice, again, you can experience its liberating quality or whether it is at the top level when experiencing uh, supramundane knowledge, past knowledge, fruition knowledge, nibbana, again, the same taste can be experienced, the taste of liberation or freedom. At the time of the Buddha, there were many other ascetics and teachers and wanderers who taught all different kinds of teachings. 
And the Buddha was well aware that these other teachers' ascetics were there and that they were also teaching liberation. He didn't deny that they were teaching ways to liberation, but he pointed out that their kind of liberation was not all encompassing freedom or perfect uh, freedom. At one time, the Buddha said, there are some ascetics and Brahmins who preach liberation. They praise liberation in various ways. But as regards the highest Aryan liberation, I do not see any who have surpassed me in this. I am supreme in this regard. So a teaching that comes with the promise of perfect or all-encompassing freedom or liberation is, of course, very attractive. That's what people want. And especially when it is said that everybody can achieve this state of complete liberation. However, when people uh, come to the Dhamma, they very soon come to hear that the way to freedom or liberation actually involves some discipline or some restraint, some self-control. And hearing this, that often dampens their initial uh, enthusiasm or interest because that's not what they came looking for in the first place. So for many, this seems to be a contradiction. For many, it can also be a stumbling block. People ask themselves, how can freedom, liberation be achieved by restricting one's actions of body, speech and mind? Or thinking, this restraint or self-control is just another prison that prevents us from being free. Or they may think, how is it possible to become free by putting more restrictions on my life? This seeming contradiction or uh, confusion lies in the fact that we have to discern two kinds of freedom. One kind of freedom is freedom as license. The other kind of freedom is freedom as spiritual autonomy or mastery over one's inner condition. Most people identify freedom with license. For them, freedom means the license to freely pursue their impulses, their desires, their cravings, their whims and to be free, so they believe they must be at liberty to do what they want, to be at liberty to speak what they want, to be at liberty to think whatever they want. And so every restriction laid upon this license is seen 
as an encroachment uh, upon the freedom. The freedom or liberation that the Buddha is referring to, of course, is not this freedom of license. The Buddha points to a spiritual freedom. This means, or this spiritual freedom, is an inner autonomy of the mind. And this results from the destruction of the defilements. Or we can say it is the liberation of the compulsive and conditioned patterns of mind. These compulsive and conditioned patterns of behavior. And so the final culmination of this kind of freedom is the deliverance of samsara, this round of repeated births and death. Even um, Gandhi said, freedom can be achieved through inner sovereignty. So this spiritual freedom as an inner internal autonomy of the mind or the mastery over one's inner condition has been exemplified by many people throughout the ages. And so these men and women have shown that the mind free from these tormenting and oppressing defilements um, they experience a degree of freedom that is unequaled. And even if these people are imprisoned, they are still experiencing a greater degree of freedom than the so-called free citizens, who are actually prisoners of their mental conditions, mental behavior. For example, after the brutal um, crushdown of the demonstrations in Yangon in Burma in 1988, many members of the NLD, the National League for Democracy, were put into prison or under house arrest. One of them was Uji Maun. Although his outer freedom was curtailed, his mind was still free. He was careful not to let his mind be imprisoned by the actions of the government taken against him. He compared the military and the soldiers as hunters. In an interview with Alan Clements, Uji Maun said, imagine the consciousness of a hunter who is all the time anxiously peeping around and suspiciously listening to every sound. His mind is set to conquer and kill. This is a truly deploring and regrettable state of mind. For this reason, all the soldiers in front of my house remind me constantly to eat my meal slowly and peacefully. I'm not in a hurry. I enjoy my freedom not tomorrow, but today. Another person 
of the National League for Democracy was in prison for many years. And he was also careful not to let his mind be overcome by habitual patterns. He tried to see the wardens and the officers in the prison not as his enemies, as one usually would perceive them, but to see them as his friends. So he tried to prevent his mind, that his mind was overcome with feelings of adversity against people who simply had to carry out their duty. Alan Clemens also talked to him, Utin U, and he said, during that time in prison, I made it a habit to practice generosity. I offered them some of the food that my wife brought me here into prison. With this act of generosity, I wanted to prevent any notion of seeing them as my enemies. So I usually shared some of my food with them. They too, these wardens and officers, had a hard life in prison, even though they were only working there and not being imprisoned. And we have heard similar accounts of Tibetan people and monks who have spent many years in Chinese prisons. Although they lacked um, personal and out of freedom, their minds were still free, even under the most trying conditions. The most severe tortures could not break their mind, and their hearts could never be put into chains. Whenever we hear accounts of these people, we immediately think of them as a kind, as kind of heroes. In a way, it's true, they were incredibly courageous to restrain their minds from falling prey to their habitual patterns. So we might look up to them as models and admire their strengths. You might even think, wouldn't it be nice if I had this strength of mind? But then somehow we resign to the fact that we probably never will reach this stage of development, or at least not in this life. <laughs> but very often the Buddha strongly encouraged his disciples to work out their own liberation, to attain the freedom of the heart and mind in this very life. At one time the Buddha said, because by careful attention, by careful right striving, I have arrived at unsurpassed liberation. I have realized unsurpassed liberation. You too, because by careful attention, by careful right striving, you must arrive at unsurpassed liberation. You must realize unsurpassed liberation.
put it in simple terms, there are two crucial areas that we must pay attention to because they usually obstruct the attainment of liberation. The Buddha pointed out three kinds of feeling. As you know, pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, and neutral feeling, feeling that is neither pleasant nor painful. So each experience is accompanied by one of these three kinds of feeling. It's impossible to have an experienced experience without any feeling. And then the Buddha also singled out three mental factors that are the subjective counterparts of these three kinds of feelings. And he called them anusaya, or latent tendency. So these latent tendencies are lying dormant in the continuum of the mind. And they are always ready to crop up into a state of manifestation when an appropriate stimulus is encountered. And then when the impact of the stimulus is worn, has worn off, then these latent tendencies subside again into a state of latency or a state of dormancy. And so these three mental factors, um, which are latent tendencies, are lust or forms of uh, any form of greed, aversion, and ignorance. So these are basically the three unwholesome roots, greed, hatred, and delusion. And the Buddha further pointed out when a so-called worldling, that is a person who has not yet reached any of the stages of enlightenment. So when a worldling experiences a pleasant feeling, then the latent tendency to lust springs up. Or in other words, then a desire to possess or enjoy this object uh, is there. When the worlding experience is an unpleasant feeling, then the latent tendency to aversion rises up. That means that's the aversion towards the pain or the unpleasant mental state. And when a worldling experiences a neutral feeling, then the latent tendency to ignorance becomes uh, dominant. Ignorance delusion is like a dark shadow that makes clear seeing impossible. And so it perverts or distorts our seeing or perception. So these three latent tendencies to lust, aversion, and ignorance will persist in the stream of consciousness forever if nothing is done against them. As I said, 
feeling is present with each moment of experience. And so the corresponding latent tendency will uh, always spring up um, as long as it, is need, as it is not completely uprooted. So it's not enough to simply be aware of the feeling and the immediate reaction of either lust, aversion or ignorance. Of course, to be aware of this is still better than being completely uh, ignorant of it. However, if we aspire uh, to true freedom, we must uproot these latent tendencies. So if we want to become liberated from these tormenting and oppressing states of mind, we must eliminate these latent tendencies from the stream of our mind. That is the only true freedom of the mind and heart. From our own experience, we know uh, quite well that these latent tendencies are strongly embedded in our mind. They are the conditioned responses to all the different sense impressions. And this conditioning has been going on for a long, long time. And each time we fall back into this conditioned reaction, we reinforce and strengthen that conditioning. And this in turn makes it even more difficult to change these habitual patterns. So even if a person has all the outer freedom that one can imagine, like being a universal monarch and enjoying every uh, freedom possible, that person is still not uh, completely free because he or she is still at the mercy of his or her conditioned mind. In terms of license, this person is completely free. But in terms of a spiritual autonomy, this person is still a victim of bondage or a slave to the workings of his or her mind. The process of meditation can be considered or described as a process of deconditioning. A deconditioning of the habitual patterns that govern our minds. And recent scientific research has shown that on the physical level of the brain, it is actually possible to change the neuronal reaction of the brain with mind training. That is, it's possible to change these reactions uh, with the practice of meditation. And so, in the light of spiritual freedom, this means the freedom from greed, aversion, and delusion. Only when these latent tendencies are completely uprooted will they never arise again.
and in the scriptures this is uh, compared to the stump of a palm tree. Because um, the stump of a palm tree will never uh, sprout again. If one cuts other trees, then if the roots are still, still intact, they uh, can sprout again. However, if one cuts a palm tree, uh, the stump will not uh, sprout again, even if the roots are still intact. And so when a person has eradicated or uprooted all the defilements, then one has this inner freedom. There is a mastery over one's inner condition. And once this state is attained, nobody can take it away. Nothing can destroy it. This liberation of the heart and mind is unshakable. It's irreversible. So in that state, if a pleasant object comes into the range of perception, one does not yearn for it. There is no desire for it. If unpleasant objects come into the range of perception, one does not recoil from these objects. And if neutral objects are perceived, then the mind is not indifferent uh, to them. The mind just perceives these objects arising, being, passing away, and the mind can stay in a balanced and equanimous state. And so with this, this vicious cycle of attraction and repulsion has been broken. And this is true freedom uh, of the mind. It's, the mind is free from its habitual and heavily conditioned patterns. Many years ago, we had a yogi from Thailand practicing in our meditation center in Burma. And one day at lunchtime, not eating yet, but watching the yogis eating, seeing um, if there was everything on the tables for them, I noticed that this particular Thai yogi started to eat a banana. And he didn't peel the banana, but started to eat the banana with the peel. <laughs> and so I kept looking at him, watching him. And actually, he finished the whole banana with the peel and everything. <laughs> and the following day, he came for interview with Sayadaw, and I had to translate. And so he mentioned that while having his meal, uh, he was eating the whole banana without peeling it because he wanted to see if there was any reaction in his mind. <laughs> and he said there was no reaction. <laughs> so this freedom that the Buddha points towards is a freedom 
that uh, must be gained through a disciplined uh, practice, some perseverance and effort is needed. Unfortunately, this kind of freedom doesn't fall from the sky as a gift of grace. In regard to effort, the Dalai Lama said, and that's a quote from many years ago, uh, he said, within a short time span, it is impossible to change all our concepts or the entire attitude of our mind. It needs constant application. Speaking from my own small experience, from the age of about 16 or 17, I began to make some serious effort to change and improve my outlook. Now, at 55, some 39 years have gone by, several decades have passed, yet still, the result is not satisfactory. <laughs> we do have to struggle and to work hard, and that's the reality. So, even a person like the Dalai Lama uh, says that it is not so easy. A fully liberated mind is the mind of a fully liberated person, like an Arahant, a Buddha, or a Pacheka Buddha. However, we do not have to wait uh, until we become fully enlightened to taste the taste of the Dhamma. Just as salt lends its flavor to whatever food it is used to season, so does the taste of freedom pervade the entire teaching of the Buddha. At the basic level, we can experience the taste of freedom when, for example, we practice generosity. In the moment, in a moment of giving, we are temporarily free from the defilements, and so we can get a little taste of freedom. Just for a very brief moment, we might experience a feeling of lightness, of great joy, of gladness, or contentment, of happiness and peace or at the intermediate level, uh, it is during mm, the practice of meditation that we may be able to nibble on tiny bits of so-called freedom nuggets. <laughs> Each time when our awareness, concentration and other mental factors are well balanced and developed, we can taste a little bit of this uh, liberating freedom contained in that moment. Because that sense of uh, freedom comes about when the defilements, forms of greed, aversion and uh, delusion uh, are not uh, present, even if it's only temporary. And then at the top level, when the 
supramundane states are uh, attained, past knowledge, fruition knowledge, Nibbana. There, greed, hatred, and delusion um, are not there anymore. And so the obstructive defilements are absent. And so then the mind is pure and radiant. And we can say that wisdom and compassion are in full blossom. An enlightened person's mind is free to do what is good, beneficial, or helpful. And it is free from the conditioned and unwholesome responses. The Buddha described this process of becoming free or liberated in this way. Experiencing revulsion, one becomes dispassionate. And through this passion, one's mind is liberated. When the mind is liberated, there comes the knowledge, unshakable is my liberation of mind. This is my last birth. Now there is no more renewed existence. I consider myself very fortunate to have met some of those persons who are said to be enlightened, such persons as the Dalai Lama and the number of Burmese Sayadaws, monks. And each of these encounters has been, uh, was a very deep and profound experience. Of course, none of these beings has exclaimed that he or uh, her is enlightened, but it's the public opinion that kind of says this or that person is enlightened. And of course, I'm in no way able to judge whether this public opinion is true or not. But just from my personal experience, I can say that there was something very special or extraordinary in meeting these beings. What struck me most in these outstanding beings was this sense of calm or peace and serenity that emanated from them. And sometimes it almost felt tangible. It was like being in the, in the middle of a huge lake whose waters were completely still, having no ripples going over the water. And it was as if there was no restriction, no limit, and no boundaries. And there was no need for me uh, to justify why I was there. For other people who met, for example, the Dalai Lama personally, I heard that for them it was kind of a wow uh, experience. 
that it was really something very special and unusual and almost blew them away. For me, it was not this kind of wow experience, but rather an experience that was rather subtle, gentle, and extremely profound. I remember so clearly my first encounter with the Dalai Lama uh, that was about 16 years ago. When I came into his immediate presence, just standing right in front of him, I was just uh, engulfed into this space of calm, peace, uh, serenity, and then a thought popped up, and it was like, this is normal. This is what a normal human being is like. We, all the unenlightened beings, are abnormal <laughs> or insane with minds that are not actually properly functioning. Another being in whose presence I felt this wide, calm space of freedom was Shwe Umin Sayadaw, a Burmese monk. He passed away some years ago. And about two months before he passed away, I went to pay respect to him. I went there with my Burmese friend Mimi, and as we entered his room, which was quite a big room, he was talking to a Burmese family who had offered him uh, a set of robes. And after finishing the conversation with this Burmese family, he gave a short Dhamma talk. Mimi and I were, sit uh, were sitting there listening. And Shweomin Sayado's voice was very gentle and soft. And so I did not understand every single word he said, but I could follow the general outline of his talk. And then he finished it with the traditional uh, dedication and sharing of merits. People then had to repeat after him. And shortly after I and Mimi had entered the room, I started to feel a strong and almost palpable presence in the room. It felt very calm, very still, like boundless and extremely peaceful. And when the recitation, the dedication and sharing of merit came to the passage, may we swiftly attain to Nibbana, it was like being thrown into this unconditioned state for a short moment. Nibbana was no longer a state that might be achieved sometime in the future or another life, but it was right there, right there in that moment. So we should never forget that the ultimate goal of the Buddha's teaching is actually closer than we think. Mutta was a nun at the time of the Buddha who experienced that 
ultimate freedom. A description of her awakening can be found in the Terigatas. I will finish this talk with her verse. So freed, so thoroughly freed am I from three crooked things set free, from mortar, pestle, and a crooked old husband. <laughs> Having uprooted the craving that leads to becoming, I'm set free from aging and death. Let's sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.